This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Book of Romans, and uh, we actually turn a corner, a very important corner um, tonight, which is we go from, in some sense, you could call the um, the theological, the primarily theological section of Romans, which is Romans one through eleven, and we shift into uh, what is sometimes called the ethical section, the moral section, where Paul is giving exhortations that are based on the theological section of Romans one through eleven, and. I would call this uh, kingdom ethics, the ethics of the kingdom of God, which are completely different ethics from the ethics of the uh, world we live in. Um, I call the world we live in sometimes the empire uh, because the Egyptian empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Greek empire, and the Roman empire all were these, the background of the Bible, these uh, empires that were opposed to God. And we live in an empire today that is also opposed to God. Uh, no matter where you live in the world, we're all part of that empire. And so these kingdom ethics are the ways that the kingdom, um, in some ways, uh, is always in peaceful protest against the empire. Austin mentioned in a um, video that he sent out today that um, our worship service is not like going to get brunch. Um, it's much more like a peaceful protest. It's an essential part of what it means uh, to live in the coronavirus. And so... Um, Our worship is instilling an entirely new kind of ethics into the world. Every time we meet and gather, your mind is changed, your mind is renewed, and you're not as conformed to the image of the world. Uh, You're more conformed into the uh, image of God and his kingdom. And so this is a really important thing to be doing right now. Um, Your mind is being changed, uh, shaped, formed, even as I'm speaking. Everything we've done so far has been doing that. It's going to continue. Uh, Verse 2. It's kind of the most important verse of this passage where Paul says, don't be conformed uh, into the present evil age. That's literally what he says. Do not be conformed into the present evil age in which we live, but be transformed by renewing your mind. So don't be conformed uh, to the pattern of this world, uh, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the essential idea behind kingdom ethics is the, the resistance movement to the empire You know, I like to think of Star Wars, the Galactic Empire, and we're like the Rebel Alliance. And the resistance movement starts up here, like with just a little train of thought, like a little flow of thought that occurs. And then those thoughts, they move down all through your body to your extremities. And pretty soon your whole body is being changed in the way that it acts, the way it does, what it feels, the way it moves. Uh, Notice in verse 1 how important our bodies are to God. Uh, It says, because of all that God has done for you, because of what the king has done for you, present your bodies to him. It's very important that he says bodies. He's already been talking about renewing your mind. Now he's saying that um, the mind is going to change the way that we use our bodies. 
And so every step we take, every touch, every sip that we take, every bite is all coming from gratitude to the king. Because of what he's done for us, we present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And so what has he done for us? Well, what he's done for us is what he's been talking about in Romans 1 through 11. Uh, he, he chose us. Uh, he called us. He died for us. He rose for us. He glorified us. And now he's saying, because you have done those things for us, um, we pledge our bodies to you, our entire bodies. We pledge our mouths and what we say, our eyes and what we look at, what we notice, our fingers and what we type. We pledge our entire selves, every part of our bodies to you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, verse 12. So it's our, our mind trickling down into our bodies, transforming our bodies. And the most important transformation that occurs when you go from the empire into the kingdom is the transformation, and this is not what you would expect, but it's the transformation uh, from pride, arrogance, conceitedness, thinking you're better than you are, thinking you're better than other people, into humility, uh, into the way that Christ lived his life, service, uh, into cooperating, not competing. Uh, and you can see that when a person changes like that, and it's very slow, but I've known it in my own life, and you can see the way a person's posture changes. It changes your body. Uh, it changes the way your, your gaze, your, you go from having haughty eyes to having soft and humble eyes. And there really is, there's such a thing as the difference between eyes that are arrogant and eyes that are soft and gentle and humble. You've seen that when you've looked at people's eyes. And the lines of your mouth, even the way that your mouth you know, operates, you can see the difference. When you go from pride to humility, uh, your blood pressure goes down. All these things happen physically. So I want to look at, first of all, the way that uh, the kingdom ethics changes your thinking. Okay, so that's the first point. And then the second point is that primarily change, the primary change in thinking is from going from uh, pride into humility. So those two things. First of all, going back to verse 2, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think, not the way you feel. The way you feel comes out of the way you think. It always starts with our thoughts. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has proven this, that our feelings are, are simply a reaction to how we interpret the world. And so if you interpret the world in a new way, you will immediately begin to feel in a new way. And the kingdom will help you to interpret the world in a new way. Uh, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world in verse 2. Do not copy the behavior and customs of the world. And the word that Paul uses is the word schema, uh, which is where we get, get a word to scheme, like scheme to scheme things out. So the word he uses in Greek is schema. And uh, one uh, commentary says that a schema is the power of social groups, cultural norms, institutions, and traditions to mold our thought patterns. So what are the different schema uh, that you buy into? What are the ways that you have had your mind molded by the world, the empire, the present evil age? Uh, one of the things that we talked about at the last Discovering Salem is just this idea that I must have romance in my life. I must, have, I must enjoy sexual intimacy in my life. It's, a, it's not 
something that uh, is a gift. It's, a, it's something that is a right. I have a right to that. And if, I don't have a, if my life does not have marriage in it um, or, or anything, any kind of sexual activity, then, then I can't live a fulfilled life. Uh, that's, that's one of those schema that the world has that we simply idolize uh, sexuality. And uh, that is not actually true. Uh, I actually know someone who lived a perfect life uh, completely celibate, and his name's Jesus. And Paul the same way. So you can have a completely fulfilled life and not enjoy that gift. It's a gift. Um, that's one of the schema. Uh, another word, another one is that uh, my value is in my wealth. My value is in my, um, my salary. My value is in my impact on the world. Uh, my value is in the quality of my family. In the, um, the great kids that I have. Or my grades. Or my popularity. I mean, obviously one of the huge uh, schema in the world is just uh, social media and the number of likes that we have and the way that we get a dopamine hip when we get another like. Um, the way we want people to perceive us. It's a massive uh, schema that people in Paul's day would not have even been able to imagine that. I mean, you are, and I am too, a little bit less so because of my age, but I mean, you are afflicted by something that nobody in the history of the world has ever had to deal with, which is this monster of social media that attacks your thoughts and that changes the way you feel about things and that can bring massive depression into people's lives and jealousy and feeling left out and competition. And so the culture, the world, the empire, it just molds our thinking. We see an average of 5,000 advertisements a day. I don't even know how that's possible, but that is true. 5,000 different images go through our mind. Words, images, jingles, music, uh, Facebook, Google, Netflix, ESPN, Apple, Disney, all these things flying into our mind. Um, there's a movie, Star Trek, Wrath of Khan, way before your day. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen that movie, but it's, there are these little worms that the evil guy named Khan uh, puts in people's ears, and the worms go down into their ears, they wrap around their brain stems, and they change your thoughts. They make you susceptible to new thoughts. And uh, they are called uh, SETI eels, C-E-T-I-E-E-L-S. They're really disgusting. I'll never forget them because I remember the way when they get into their ears, suddenly the person is into, under the control of Khan. And um, I think that they're these worms. That It's a great image of the disgusting nature of these worms that Satan puts on our cheek and it crawls into our ear. And pretty much after that, we can't think straight anymore. And so all the loneliness that's created by all the social media... It's like a worm that's gone down into your mind. Or all the problems with intimacy that people have when they're married because they've looked at so much pornography. It's a little worm that goes down into your mind, wraps around your brainstem, changes you forever. And Paul says, let God transform you. Paul says, that's not the end of the story. Um, we can overcome these things. Let God transform you. Uh, we're never hopeless. We're never beyond the pale of God's redemption. Somebody said in a Bible study that I'm in, I studied the Bible with these guys, and we always talk about the passage before I actually preach on it. It really helps. And one of the guys said, um, the word let, I noticed the word let, instead of you do it yourself, it's I open myself to God's activity. That all the energy comes from God. Let God transform you. 
It doesn't say you go out and transform yourself or you start doing all these new things, you get disciplined, you buckle down. Let God transform you means the power comes from God. The energy comes from God. Transformation comes from God. And that, that in itself breaks down one of the major schema of the world, one of the biggest illusions of the empire, and that is that I have control of myself, that I have control of my life, um, that I can change myself, that I can make myself into whatever I want to be. I can define myself. That's one of the big lies of the empire. And that's why Paul says, let God transform you. And recently... I and my family have fallen into a kind of a pit that we cannot extract ourselves out of. It's like a pit where you're trying to get yourself out of the pit, but you're not up there to leverage yourself out of the pit. So you cannot, we cannot whiteboard ourselves or scheme ourselves out of this pit that we're in. Uh, and there's no foreseeable way out. And one night I stayed up for hours and hours trying to figure out how are we going to get ourselves out of this pit. And of course I couldn't go to sleep because my mind's racing. That's where God says, let me take that, let me reign, let me do the saving, let me do the delivering. You can't do that. You can't figure that out. It's like what I said last week about the Red Sea. When Moses was at the Red Sea with Israel, they did not have any clue how they were going to get out of the, the grip of the Egyptians. They were dead. And God said, let me do that. Let me fight for you. You just watch the Lord, let him do that. And he opened the Red Sea. A solution they could have never come up with. And so let God transform you means you let another voice come into your head at 4 a.m. when you're thinking through all this stuff. Let a new voice, a new conversation partner in your inner dialogue and your self-talk. You need to change the Well, you need him to ch come in and change the way you talk about yourself with yourself and the way you slander yourself to yourself. And this, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, uh, let me push back on your false narratives. You know, you, you say, no one respects me. No one thinks about me. No one notices me. And the Spirit says, let me come in and, and challenge that. Like, hear my voice. And he's always deleting these lies that flow through our brains. Like, I'm ugly. I'm ridiculous. I'm uncool. I'm unwanted. They don't want me to be here right now. I'm a third wheel. The Spirit comes in and says, let me take that. And you've got to... You've got to talk to the Spirit and ask Him to come and delete those things and get that stuff out of your mind that gets in there, those worms that get in there, all the fretting, all the hurrying, all the ranking that we do of each other and of ourselves in the top 20. You know, we say, I'm in control, and God says, no, I'm, in, I'm actually sovereign. Um, you don't need to take all that on yourself. I'm sovereign. I've got this. We say... Um, you know, everybody else is good. Everybody else looks great. I'm the only one messed up. And God says, no, all have sinned. All have, all have fallen short. You're not alone. We're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. And you say, look, I'm so, I'm so dirty. You have no idea what I've done. I'm so unclean. There's no way I could be clean. And God says, no, no, no. I have, I have cleansed you. My son's blood has cleansed you. And you say, I'm, I'm a worthless failure, a failure. And God says, no, you're my child. You're, you're an heir of Christ. You're a joint heir with Christ. You're more magnificent and glorious than you can imagine. And you say, I'm missing out on life. And God says, no, the real life has not even begun yet. Whatever you give up here, whatever you don't get here, there's so much more to come. 
It's a new self-talk. Let God transform you by the renewing of your mind. Let the voice of the Holy Spirit come into your self-talk and begin to edit that. So new thinking. Uh, and, and the new thinking is not just to help us feel better. It's actually to make our lives uh, more holy and pleasing to God, more righteous. Verse 2 says, Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So this is not just counseling. Counseling is very important. Helps you to feel better. But this is actually a growth in holiness. He's going to edit your thoughts. He's going to transform your mind so that you live a life of holiness, of greater holiness and righteousness and conformity to the will of God. And that leads to point two. So the way you know that you're really being worked on by the Spirit of God is when you become more humble. When you are no longer so self-inflated and no longer so aware of yourself. You know, when you, when you, I'm not aware of my, my left forefinger most of the time. I just don't think about it a lot of time. Uh, it doesn't, it's not on my mind. I'm, um, I'm very unaware of my left forefinger for the majority of my time. But if I were to hit it right now really hard with a hammer, then I would be thinking about it. It would, be, it would be throbbing. It would be swollen. It would be red. And that's what's happened to our egos. Uh, we think about ourselves all the time. And that's what pride is. We're self, we, we turn in on ourselves. And God says, let me take that away from you. Let me help you to not think about yourself all the time. Verse 3 says, don't think that you are better than you really are. Which I, I love that Paul says that. Don't think you're better than you really are. There's a thing that psychologists call the Lake Wobegon effect. And if you know Garrison Keillor and Prairie Home Companion, in Lake Wobegon, this fictional town, all the children are above average. All the children are above average. So the Lake Wobegon effect that is um, also known as illusory superiority, which is that when people are asked on a test, how do you, how do you think you rank in comparison to everybody else in terms of intelligence? Uh, int- intelligence? Above average, average, or less than average? And I'm sure you can guess, what do people say? Uh, above average. We're all above average, which is impossible. But that's the Lake Wobegon effect. Uh, how, what is your level of honesty? You know, average, above average, below average. We all say above average. Um, what is your, um, how good a parent are you? And we all, we all say above average. And, and God says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Um, don't think you're better than you really are. Bob Dylan has a song called The Disease of Conceit, which I love that. I love the song. Um, he talks about how conceit is a disease. And uh, it makes you think you're, uh, it makes you have these delusions of grandeur that you'll never die. And then they bury you from your head to your feet from the disease of conceit. And this is what the empire is always trying to get us to do, to compare ourselves to think we're better than other people, to rank ourselves. Now, you might be saying right now, actually, I, I think I'm worse than other people. I actually, I'm on the other end of that. I'm, I'm always thinking I'm worse. So you might be thinking, then, what is Paul talking about? Because he's saying that we tend to think we're better than other people, but I actually feel like I'm worse than other people. And I think Paul would say that's just an unfulfilled desire for superiority because it bothers you. Because it bothers you that you think you're worse than other people. And so... A humble person is neither thinking they're better nor worse than other people. They're not thinking about themselves. Humility is not 
thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. And so you're not aware of your, you know, your left forefinger that's bruised. You're just not aware of yourself. You just take delight in other people. It's not uh, an inferiority complex and it's not a superiority complex. It's just realism. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, verse 3. It's just realism. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. So here's how Paul solves the problem of arrogance and conceit, um, illusory superiority. Paul says, um, I give you my church. You know, just like these members that joined tonight, I give you my church. I give you the body of Christ, which is inherently a competition killer. It is inherently a pride-destroying mechanism. Because Paul says that just as my body has many parts, okay, I've got fingers, I've got toes, I've got legs, I've got a head, shoulders, a neck, I think you all do as well. Uh, and all these parts have different functions. So my fingers are doing like this, my mouth's talking, my ears are listening, I'm feeling the weather. Um, so in Christ, we are all one body that belong to one another. And so there are people who are different parts of the body. And we, we can't compete or rank or rival each other or be superior to each other because we're all part of one body. And, you know, imagine like an ear slandering a nose, like you're so ugly. You know, that would make, if the ear were to slander the nose, they're part of the same body. It wouldn't make any sense. Or if an arm is comparing the other arm about who's strongest, again, Paul's saying this makes no sense at all. When you're all part of one body or a finger that is gossiping to a, a wrist about how ugly a toe is, Paul would say this, this is not how the body operates. It's all one organism working together. And so the very structure of the church is designed to kill jealousy and to kill superiority and rivalry. Now, I don't claim that it always works that way. It doesn't. Sadly, it does not. But when the body of Christ is healthy and when you realize that you're just one part of the body, then it takes away both your sense of inferiority and your sense of superiority. And you realize I'm part of something much bigger than myself. And um, I was listening to a sermon by one of my favorite preachers. And uh, I was enjoying it at first. I used to just, I used to always love this guy, and then I became a pastor, and at some point when I was listening to this guy as a pastor, I started to get upset because he was so much better than I am, and I couldn't figure out how to get there, and it just, so all of my joy in this guy's preaching turned into bitterness. That really did happen, amazingly. That can happen. It can happen, it might happen with you, with a friend here at the church, or with somebody else is somewhat gifted in a similar field in another church maybe, but that happened to me. And then somebody, I told somebody about this, confessed this to them. I was like, I really want to enjoy this guy's preaching still. And he said, do you not realize that when he preaches a great sermon, that you are benefiting from that sermon as part of the body of Christ just as much as he is? That all the blessings to the worldwide body of Christ are going to you just as much as to him or anyone else in the whole congregation. 
that the whole body of Christ and the whole world is strengthened when that person preaches a sermon well. And when a church over there is growing or over here is growing or over there is growing, that's helping us as well. We're all part of one body in Christ. We all belong to one another, verse 4. And so we're, we're like one organism that is not competing, but is cooperating, that is coordinated. And God says, stop comparing your gifts to one another and enjoy the Spirit's creativity in each one of your gifts. And then he goes through all these different gifts. If you're a teacher, you know, you do this. If your gift is prophesy, uh, prophesying, then do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. If it's in serving, then serve through the power of the Holy Spirit. If it's encouraging other people, then let the Spirit's power through you be a joy to you and enjoy God's gift in other people. But every one of us uh, has a gift. That's just part of the teaching of Scripture. Uh, in, in His grace, verse 6, God has given us different gifts to do certain things well. And every one of us benefits from each other's gifts. So if I, if I teach well, then our body knows God well. If, someone, if one of you is a great evangelist, then there's new life that comes into our body. If somebody's really good at hospitality and welcoming people, then our whole body has a sense of hospitality to it. If somebody's really organized and they bring that gift of organization into our body, then the whole body of Salem Presbyterian Church becomes more organized, more efficient. If someone prays all the time, then we all experience more of the fullness of God's presence. In the church, if you do something great, then I am blessed by that. And if I do something great, then you are blessed by that. And this is inherently a pride-killing mechanism, the church. And when we are rightly engaged with it, the kingdom is going to be very different from the world. Because the kingdom has a measuring stick uh, or a scale or a yardstick or a ruler or whatever you... The kingdom's measuring stick is completely flipped upside down from the world's. Because in the world, uh, supremacy and superiority are valued. And in the kingdom, those are worthless. And in the world, comparing and competing and ranking are valued. And in the kingdom, those things are worthless. Uh, Paul says, measure yourselves by the faith that God has given you. Measure yourself by the gospel, by the faith that God has given to the world in Jesus Christ. That's how we measure ourselves. And so what is the yardstick of faith? Well, let me close with this. It's from Mark 10, 42. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples who are trying to compete with one another, they're trying to decide who's the best, who's the greatest. And, and Jesus says, now, you know that those who are considered rulers of the world, uh, they love to dominate people. They love to be superior. They love to exercise their authority and lord it over them. But Jesus says it's not to be the case with you, with my disciples. Whoever would be great among you, my disciples, uh, must be your servant and take the low place and be willing to be ignored and overlooked and, and blessed and build up other people. And he says, and if you want to be the greatest, then you need to serve the most people and get down below the most people and look up to the most people and go down to where I am at the very bottom of the pyramid. So it's not a pyramid, it's an upside-down pyramid. Because then he says, for even the Son of Man, even me, who, who am the Son of Man, God incarnate, the figure in Daniel 7, the great Son of Man, the I Am coming on the clouds, 
even the Son of Man did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we celebrate at this table. Um, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is greatness.